Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. You guys had a wonderful weekend. It's been a little crazy. Quarantine is going on for so much longer than all of us thought. And, you know, I don't know if I made any empty promises to anybody saying that maybe it would be back by now. Um, but the end, the end is, uh, I don't know when the end is going to be of this quarantine. But in the meantime, I just want to welcome you. Uh, welcome. Uh, Quarantine can't stop us from being a community. And so I'm so grateful for every single part that has showed up today. We've been going through our sermon series in Acts, and it has been thick. Um, And there is no break, unfortunately. So we are continuing in our sermon series. If I sound a little bit crazy, and if I sound a little bit like my head is out of my body, I apologize. It's because I preached at 10.30 last night for a conference out in California. And so I might not, like, be up on my A-game this morning, but just would you would you track with me? Um, we're reading through Acts 15. I'm reading from the ESV. I highly recommend y'all read from the NIV or the NRSV just because it'll be easier for you to understand. Um, But I'll be reading from the ESV, and if you have the ESV, then kudos to you. I'll be reading Acts 15, from the beginning of Acts 15 until about, about Acts 30. Acts 15, verse 1 to verse 30. All right. We are not standing because we're not gathered, but I pray that all of us, we would have the heart of reverence towards our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the of them assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God had first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send to them send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men from the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we give glory to your name. It is your word that has been spoken to your congregation. Father, as you challenge us, as you embolden us to walk by faith and not by sight, I pray, God, that you would hide me behind your cross, that only you are glorified, that only your words are magnified and your words and your convictions are preached to your people. I pray, God, for willing hearts and willing ears and eyes to listen to you, to walk in the light, that the reality of Jesus Christ would inhabit every space of every ear that is listening to this prayer. We believe in you. You are real, Jesus, and you come and move. So, God, we press in to your reality. Forgive us where we have been faithless. Thank you for where you have been faithful. And continue to use, continue to move in us and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today, the sermon title is called God's New Way. The main idea is God, who is greater than we are, can do a completely new thing when he calls us to grace and not works. I'm going to say that one more time. The main idea is God, who is greater than we are, can do a completely new thing when he calls us to grace and not to works. As we start off this sermon, I want to ask, I want to pose to all of you the question, what if God takes a new way that we do not know? What if God moves in a new way in the church that we have never seen before? Now there are two things that I want to address in this sermon. The first is the issue of circumcision. And the second is the response of the church. But I want us to really zero in on this, the origin of why Acts 15 exists. Verses 1 through 3 lays it down fairly succinctly. There was a fight. In the ESV, it says no small agreement. In the NIV, it should should stay sharp. There was a sharp disagreement in Antioch between Jews and Gentiles. And it hits ahead. And what are they issue? What is the issue? What are they arguing about? And that issue that is being brought up is circumcision. Circumcision. On one end, Gentiles are saying it is the faith of God and baptism that allows us to be Christian. But the Jews are saying it is believing in Jesus Christ and also being circumcised and observing the law 
They must observe the law. Now, before we go into the ideological debate that led in a nasty argument between Paul and Barnabas and the church, so much so that they had to go back to Jerusalem to hear the voices of the apostles. Before we go into how that disagreement played out, I want us to really, I want to break down what is circumcision? Why is circumcision such a big deal that it's talked about in Galatians, that it's talked about in Ephesians, that it's talked about over and over? Why is circumcision such a big deal? What is circumcision? Circumcision is an outward manifestation defined by God of the promise to Abraham. So while Abraham was still a pagan, while Abraham was still a sinner, God calls out to Abraham and says, I will bless you and the world through your seed. And he blesses Abraham with this covenant, this amazing covenant in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. God takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars. See how many there are if you can number them. Thus shall your seed be to an old man and an old grandma, to, to a grandpa and a grandma, both who are barren, both who had no children. God says, through your seed, I will bless the whole world. It's, an, it's a remarkable, like nothing quite like it in the Bible, other than the story of Jesus. There's nothing quite like the story of Abraham, the story of complete faith, complete grace, and out of the blue salvation, out of the blue promise, out of the blue love. But the marker, the visible marker that God asked of Abraham to mark everyone of the internal promise of faith was circumcision. For those of you guys who are younger, I apologize. Circumcision is practically when you when you cut off the foreskin on a man's genital part, right? And so that was a physical way, and it's very painful. But that was done to every child from birth and every adult who entered in or married somebody in the Jewish nation. And it was an outward symbol of internal promise to be physically and also internally set apart. Now, while Israel was physically set apart, what they ended up wrestling with was an internal holiness. But either way, the act of circumcision at this point had gone on for 2,000 years. It's likely that Abraham and God encountered it. The story of Abraham happens in 2100 or 2200 BC. And this is around, it should be around 50 or 60 AD. So at this point, it had been nearly 2300 years. And when you think about it that way, It had been so ingrained. Circumcision had been so ingrained in Jewish Christians. And their belief in it was so strong because most likely they grew up with it. It was probably, and because we, we know that the Jewish nation is a theocracy, which means that it is a nation state that is cultural and ethnic, but also religious, right? And so even though it is a religious custom, most likely it was a cultural thing as well. And ultimately, it was a good thing to be circumcised on behalf of the promise of Abraham, whom God did use to bring Jesus Christ. Isn't it right? Wouldn't it still be a good thing for people to be circumcised? Wouldn't it still be helpful for them to be circumcised and become a member of the body? Wasn't that something that God established? And then God normalized through Moses. Is circumcision not a thing that God put in place? And so the, the, the concern that Jewish Christians had was both valid and also understandable. It was both logical and also not unreasonable. It was a good thing at the time. Established by the custom of Moses, a long-established practice, and so fundamental to the Jewish belief, so fundamental to the Judeo-Christian God, 
almost as fundamental as the cross. If the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith, circumcision was the symbol of God to the Judeo-Christian world. And so for the Jews to say everybody who accepts Jesus Christ should be circumcised, it's a nod to Abraham. We always read about how, oh, faith and not works righteousness and not works of the law. But if you put it that way, it doesn't seem so unreasonable, does it? And yet Paul and Barnabas and the Antioch Christian Jewish, uh, the Antioch Jewish Christians in the Antioch church, the church of Antioch, they get into this sharp disagreement to the point where leaders send Paul and Barnabas to get this confirmed with the head honchos. Because of the controversiality of Gentile Christians and their unique status within the church given circumcision. So it was very controversial because circumcision was a good thing. And one thing, like at its core, if you think about it, why couldn't Jewish Christians understand circumcision? The idea that was that although the quality of life of the people of God is affected in Christ through forgiveness, although the quality of life has been greatly exponentiated through the forgiveness and the mercy of God through Christ Jesus, it was hard for Judeo-Christians to still accept the quantity of lives and the membership, the boundaries of membership in, in, in dismantling circumcision and obedience to the law because Jesus was still adhering to the Judeo-Christian world and so they it had been so normalized at this point and they saw no reason as to why that should have to go down for example it's like the Ten Commandments right like how do I put this like we're we're in the new covenant world there's nothing except faith that saves us but we still Growing up, we still are encouraged to memorize the Ten Commandments. And even non-Christians live by the Ten Commandments because it's not a bad thing. Do not murder, do not steal, do not covet your neighbor, your neighbor's house, do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Rest and keep the Sabbath holy. These things are not bad things. And so in this sense... The Jewish Christians couldn't understand, even though everything, like the consequences of their lack of adherence to the law was lifted in forgiveness in Jesus Christ, they didn't understand why circumcision had to be dismantled altogether. But Paul and Barnabas sharply disagreed. When it says sharp, it's like piercing. It talks about like it's like it's talking about a point, which means that they really came for each other's lives. And so they were like, "All right, y'all, this is too much. Y'all can go to Jerusalem and figure it out." And so Paul does. Along the way, he passes by uh, Cilicia and Phoenicia, and everybody rejoices. Because Paul and Barnabas, as missionaries, have widespread support in the area. Now, although although this is something that is hard for us maybe to wrap our minds around, I want us to think about like what what is something that is like circumcision in your own life? What is something that you do for the sake of doing? Um, honoring your elders. For example, honoring your elders is something that is so ingrained in Korean culture that we do it for the sake of doing it. We do it because it's a good thing and we've learned it all along. What about... Some of us, we might... Oh man, TBT. I don't know if y'all missed this, but I even miss this now. When we used to have monthly communion together with all the elders, and everybody would read the same exact liturgy every month, but everyone would be reading off of it. Like, I, I try not to laugh, and I try not to look at y'all's faces every month in the beginning of the month when we go for communion, because when, when it says "and to you, peace in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ," when you guys say that to one another, y'all look like robots. There's like literally, you know, you're proclaiming peace over each other's lives. You're like, peace. Peace in the name of our Lord. Peace in the name. Yes, and to you. And like, it's very, very robotic. Everybody does that at this point for the sake of doing it. And the way that that manifests on y'all's faces is hilarious. And so I try not to look at y'all's faces. Uh, I even miss that now, being rudely interrupted by elders in the middle of preaching. Um... Uh, but anyways, uh, 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 you never know when you 
Actually, never mind. Let me not say that. Uh, but things that we do for the sake of doing. Things that we do for the sake of doing. What's one thing that you do for the sake of doing? One thing that I do for the sake of. One thing that I did for a long time for the sake of doing it is saying grace before a meal. I think I still am learning the significance of a prayer before a meal, and that's why I've actually shortened it. Uh, some context about that, actually, the story of why it became God, we thank you for food and family and love, amen, is actually because I grew, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and I don't know if y'all know anything about Korean American first generation people. But, and actually this probably exists in a lot of first generation immigrants. I've been in, like, I remember, not even immigrant, it might just be the previous generation's thing. I feel like I've experienced this, maybe not, not as much in the white church, but definitely in the, in the, in the black church and in the, um, Lion of Judah down in, um, Boston. When we pray, even if it's we're praying before a meal, I don't know if y'all have known this, but leaders in the church, they can pray for five minutes. Like, my food is getting cold in front of me. And growing up, I couldn't, like, you know, half of it is in, like, really difficult Korean. So while I was still in Korean school, like, I don't understand half the things that are coming. I'm just, I'm just smelling. I'm just smelling. We ate a lot of kimchi jjigae and pudik jjigae at our church. And yukkejang. So these are three different Korean dishes that are filled to the brim with meat. And if y'all know anything about me, your girl loves meat. So I would just be smelling meat while the elder goes up like this in front of 7,000 people and literally does not stop praying. Right? And so like, even though I hated it so much, one of the things that I grew up like internalizing is, oh, when you pray in front of people, you're supposed to pray a long time. You're supposed to say all these elaborate sentences. You're supposed to pray for your meal. You're supposed to pray for every family. You're supposed to pray for suffering in the world. You're supposed to pray for the people who don't have meals. You're supposed to pray for New York and New Jersey. You're supposed to pray for the tri-state area. You're supposed to pray for revival in the Korean church. You're supposed to pray for all of these things as we eat. And that's something that was ingrained into me from an early age because Presbyterians, they don't, their public prayers get a little bit too crazy. Um, and one, the one, the first thing that when, when I when I really became a Christian, the first thing, the first thing that I cut away was actually prayer. The first challenge I gave myself is, let me not pray anything that I don't mean. Uh, let me not pray anything for the sake of just praying. But let me pray exactly what I mean. And honestly, when I I am so young. There are a lot of people that have far more experiences than I have. And even though I have been through great amounts of suffering, I have not experienced hunger very much because even when I was poor, even when there was a week and a half where my family didn't have a house, even then, my the adults made sure that I always ate. So I don't actually know what it's like to starve because we couldn't eat um, because I was always fed, even when we were dirt poor. And um, so I don't understand the great I might not understand the full depth of thankfulness about what it means to not have food on the table but I am extremely thankful for my food I'm thankful for the love that I have with the people that I'm eating with and I'm thankful for the people that I'm eating with and so that's why it was God thank you for food and family and love amen the reason why I pray that way so that I don't do anything for the sake of doing But in church, just like communion, just like the liturgy that we do, just like even the prayers that we pray before a meal, a lot of the things we might be doing for the sake of doing it. Maybe we've just been doing it all this time. I remember when we first had to do one, oh, one more thing. One more thing that y'all might agree with before I move on. One thing that I don't understand. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm apologizing. I don't know who I'm... One thing that I don't understand why we have to do is Christmas performance. I have never, I have never understood why everybody needs to go in front of the adult congregation and sing. Like, I have never understood that. For the life of me, I have never, and like, I grew up in a mega church, so y'all, y'all do one song or two songs, right? I had to do like multiple scene plays. I had to memorize like a book, like a stack this thick in Korean when I was five. And like, we've had to do like, it's not even nativity skits, like the people in the church make a skit every year and make lines every year. I'm twitching and I've had to do this from Sunday school, from I was five, okay? 
And one thing I've never understand, I've never understood, is why we have to do Christmas performances. And so, like, the first thing I, I wanted to do when I became a pastor is, like, when I become a pastor, I'm going to challenge Christmas performances. So I came in, when I first came into, I'll never forget it. I, when I first came into North Boston, it was like at the end of November. I made it a vendetta. I made it a personal, I've never shared this before. I made it a personal vendetta. I was like, I'm going to not do it this year. And then I'm like, Moksani, I'll do the retreat last minute. I'll do everything. But Moksani, I don't know the kids well enough. I'm not going to have a Christmas performance. He goes, okay, we'll make Joe do it. And I was like, I, I'll never forget. It was like a, I was like, no, I don't think that the kids should, no, 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 no. Like, it's just one, one, one thing that's just been done. The adults loving, see, love, love seeing the kids and this is the only way that they can interact. I'm like, oh. But what? No, 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 we're gonna, oh my god, no, 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 we're gonna do it. This way, it's what we, it's what, it's what's been done. And I remember coming out of that meeting with the one purpose of trying to dis go like disengage and do away with Christmas performances, and then I came out very defeated. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. So there are a lot of things that the church does for the sake of doing. And a lot of these things are good. A lot of these things are good. But the challenge that is brought to the Jewish Christians is why why circumcision has to be done. At this point, at a certain point in this argument, it was most likely that circumcision had to be done because it was always done. Because it was always a marker of God's promise and faithfulness. And they had they had made those two things synonymous with one another. Forgiveness of Jesus Christ and circumcision. Instead of see, looking at the cross. But Jane, though, how can even if, like, even if Jewish Christians, like, had constantly been doing it for 2,000 years, how can that be lorded over the Gentiles and made them feel, like, how can the Jewish Christians use this as a way to make the Gentiles feel like they're second-rate citizens after receiving the grace of Jesus? It's simple. It's a matter of worldview. They might not know what else to think. A lot of us believe certain things in this world because we grew up with it. Why is murder bad? Can you really say that murder is bad solely? Like, can you really say that you are born with the notion that murder is bad? Can you really truly say to yourself, maybe you would have been uncomfortable with it, but can you really truly say to yourself that murder, you were born with murder being bad completely? I think there is some semblance of the Holy Spirit. Like we are still mirroring God and we are born with the knowledge of good and evil because of the original sin. So I think to some extent we are born with certain moral codes. But if it were not taught to us that murder is bad, if we did not live in a world where everybody assumed that murder was bad, we wouldn't have readily accepted it as much. Another thing is like sex. The world believes that sex is completely like sex in and out of marriage, any any like that sex should have no boundaries. That like a boyfriend and girlfriend can have sex, sexual relationships, sexual intimacy is very normalized and it's very common. But do you think that way? Most Christians don't. Why? It's not just because, it's not just because of your convictions. To some extent, you grew up hearing this over and over and over. And even though people might stop becoming Christians at some point, it's hard to dismantle that in the back of your mind. So we see a lot of non-Christians who have turned away from the church and turned away from faith. They feel even more so judged by the church. They feel even more so alienated by the church, partially because in their own minds, their worldview has not completely shut off. And they also feel perceived judgment by the teachings of Christianity. It is hard, and that's why people say that people are, everybody is a product of their time. 
It's because it's really hard to dismantle things that you grew up with. And so for the Jewish Christians, for people to be a part of the body of Christ and not be circumcised is probably an abomination. I don't even think you were allowed to enter into the temple if you weren't circumcised. So that's probably why it was such a big deal. It was probably the fight of their life, honestly, during this time. So Paul and Barnabas sharply disagree, and they go to Peter and James, and then the apostles and the elders start fighting about it. (laughs) Somebody gets up and says, they must be circumcised as well. And then it starts to go back and forth. But Peter stands up, and James stands up. And they say, nay, the gospel and the Holy Spirit only requires faith. That's what Jesus did. Why does Peter and James say this? And how come everybody listens to him? Peter and James' fundamental point is that if the Holy Spirit really, if the Holy Spirit really needed circumcision, that the Holy Spirit wouldn't have fallen on the Gentiles and people wouldn't have gotten to the point where they believe in Jesus and be saved. The Holy Spirit would have not fallen on the Gentiles before people were circumcised, if that truly were the case. But the Holy Spirit does not judge and does not discriminate who can receive and who cannot receive the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as the Christians are discriminating. And Peter and James, at at the core of this argument, Peter and James makes a very fundamental point that we are not the judge of who is saved, but the Holy Spirit is. And he calls into question the issues of superiority and inferiority in the Judeo-Christian world and normalizes it by the simple fact that none of us are judged over each other's lives other than God. We are all the same in the eyes of God. Whether we believe that we sin less or we sin more, whether we believe that we have been a part of the body of Christ longer or less, to God, that is not a that is not something that elevates your status. We are all the same before the eyes of God. 1510 says, why then are you now testing God by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither your ancestors nor we as your apostles have been able to bear? What Peter is essentially saying is, why are you testing God? Why are you challenging the consequences of that God God's initiative has for the present day? Why are you challenging what God is already doing? At the end, at at its core, the reason why the church challenges God with culture is disbelief and mistrust. And Peter is saying, what is your sole basis of salvation? What are you believing and trusting? What is the currency of righteousness in your life? Is it about sin and no sin? Is it about circumcision or uncircumcision? Or is it about faith? and no faith. What is your currency, what is your measurement of value in the body of Christ or over your own life? What do you allow to dictate your life? It's interesting that Peter uses the word yoke here because at its core, yoke is a heavy weight and a head, like a like a little like a shackle that you put over an animal's neck to manipulate animals to the will of the farmer. Peter is saying, stop making yourself the judge and manipulating the body of Christ to what you believe is right and wrong. Humbly submit yourselves, therefore, to the will of the Father. And if this is the will of the Father, then that is the will of the Father. He says here that grace releases us from even our control of each other. This is very important. Grace releases us from even our control of one another. But it's really important for us to consider that Peter and James are the ones to say this. Peter and James are two of the apostles. Which means that they are both circumcised Jewish men. This is unprecedented. 
unprecedented for Peter and James. For Peter and James to go against their own upbringing, to go against their own nation state, to go against what they've learned their whole life, to submit, therefore, to the movement of God, is for them to throw their culture out the window. And Peter, even Peter was so culturally oriented, in, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians or the book of Acts or Galatians, one of one of the three. Paul actually, like Peter comes to the church of Antioch and Peter sits with Jewish Christians and, and doesn't hang out with the Gentile Christians when Jewish Christians are around because Peter innately gets a little bit afraid of what Jewish Christians would think if he hangs out with the Gentiles. And Paul actually calls him a hypocrite in front of everybody, like in the cafeteria. While everybody is made into cliques, Peter call, Paul calls Peter on and says, you hypocrite, you're an apostle, and yet you're not hanging out with the Gentiles. So Peter has been called out by Paul about this, about cultural norms. And yet it is Peter that humbly stands up and speaks out what is right, even when he has acted contrary to it. He could very well be defensive and be on the other party. But Peter and James, who are already circumcised, also, they lay down what they know. And they allow God to level out the playing field. It's also significant that Peter and James are the ones to call them out. It's not the people that are oppressed and discriminated against that are calling out on their behalf. But it's the people who are circumcised, the people who are privileged, the people in power that denounce inferiority and superiority or any level of hierarchy in the body of Christ. These two things are really important to know. And why does Peter and James do this? Why do they relinquish their authority as Jews? As Jews? Because of the Holy Spirit. James, what about the basic things that James sets out? Like, Jane, if we read this, I mean, Peter and James isn't basically saying that faith in Jesus Christ is, is everything. There are still some non-negotiables. You know, like blood and not eating strangled animals and sexual immorality and idolatry. Like, they, they still have rules. Why do we still have rules? If faith and grace is really a why do we still have rules? If you have been wondering that after reading the passage and hearing me, good question. Peter and why why James actually distinguishes that is actually it's it's basically advice about how not to offend Jews. So in Jewish customs, there are three non-negotiables for the Jewish custom: sexual immorality, murder, and idolatry. So James is basically saying, don't do these things, not just because they are sin. Sexual immorality and idolatry are sins. But the basis of what James is saying is don't do anything that would trigger the Jews too much. Why? For the sake of unity. Because if the Gentiles completely were on the other side and being like, I'm unwilling to give up every, every one of my rights then the Jews and the Gentiles would never be able to sit at the same table because they would not be able to eat the same food. The priority was unity. And that's why James says don't do these things. Because for the Jews, you have to understand, the Roman world was a a polygamous world where prostitutes were, like it was normal for husbands to have prostitutes and concubines. But the Jewish custom is monogamous. So sexual immorality is particularly a bigger deal as well. And so that's why James says these things. In his words, the priority wasn't righteousness. It wasn't qualifications to be in the kingdom of God. But the priority of these things was unity. That is a critical distinction. James is not saying if you do these things, you are righteous. He's saying don't do these things so we can still be a body. Hold these particular sins to a higher standard so that everybody can be unified. Because that will stumble the Jewish Christians.
Now, this is a very interesting scenario where tradition is flipped upside down and God does something completely unprecedented to lead the church into a new season of grace and faith. Kind of like the Constitution. I won't go into it. I'm a bit of a history geek. But the Constitution was an unprecedented document of democracy in a time where there was only dictatorship and monarchy. I don't know if y'all are taught this in U.S. history class, but when the founding fathers were making all of the laws, basically the way that they were doing it is like, well, this sounds right. I've never seen this happen before. Have you? I don't know. Let's write it down. That was literally the Constitution. That is literally because it was so, un- democracy was so unprecedented. And that's why there were so many compromises. The House and the Senate, for example. Huge compromise. Checks and balances. Huge compromise. Because they couldn't agree on the ideal form of government. And if the Constitution is that unprecedented, you have to think how much more this is. Because this is actually flipping the tables upside down completely, forever, for good. Your worth, your value, your eternity completely changed, completely shifted. Abraham, out the window. Old covenant, out the window. Mosaic customs doesn't have a hold on over you anymore. It's faith. And the Jewish Christians were flipping upside down. So how do we apply? What are some lessons that we can learn from this passage? The first thing is, what is our own way that we might allow our tradition to affect the way that we understand faith? What is our own way that we might allow our tradition to affect the way we understand faith? I I actually had to address this in discipleship multiple times this week. A lot of us in discipleship were actually going through the book of Romans. And one thing that we have to address as we go through the book of Romans, in Sunday school, you, what do you learn about sin? In Sunday school, we grow up learning that sin is bad. We grow up learning that what it means to be a Christian is to go to church and to do good to your family and not do anything stupid and stay out of trouble. Now, it's wonderful to do these things. Please, don't cut class, don't do drugs, stay out of trouble, right? These things are good things, okay? But we learn that certain things are important so as to be a Christian. And those things are ingrained into us and give, they birth shame. Damn it. I watched porn again this week. Man, I feel so far from God right now. Damn it. I can't believe I still, I still ended up having sex with my girlfriend. Damn it. Damn it. I still, I can't stop forgetting about God. Damn it. I can't stop this addiction that I have to nicotine. Damn it. I can't stop the way that I completely, I just, I just, God is so far from my mind and I just don't feel close to him. I can't help but forget and live in the world. I just feel so worldly. I'm so bad. Because I grew up learning that sin is the opposite of, of Christianity. What we see here shows us that the person to rewrite the playing field is God. And what's really interesting, I, what I love about Romans, Romans is the book that Paul wrote. Paul is a very critical part of this passage. But one key element, we always, we always, like in Christianity, you might feel like we always focus on don't sin, read the Bible, right? And you might feel like, James, you say that. I mean, because it's, read, read, I, anyway, reading the Bible is a good thing, you know? But, we cannot just focus on Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and forget and have been given righteousness through faith, through, have been given grace as a gift. Romans 3.24, we cannot just take John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever, whomever does not believe may perish, but whoever believes may have eternal life. And forget Romans, I mean, John 3.17, for God did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Romans 4 says, what is counted as righteousness in your life? 
And what this passage says, what count, what makes you count in the body of Christ is not what you have done. It's not what you have eaten. It's not what you have committed. It's not what you have believed in before. What counts as literal righteousness, as an act of righteousness that reinstates your status is faith. The boundary between people that are gods and people that are not gods is not sin. It is faith. Belief that Jesus really did do what he said he did. But Jane, it is so hard for me to like look at Jesus. I sometimes I just I just can't even look, I can't even glance at the Bible some days when I just feel like I've been so worldly. It doesn't matter. That's your perceived notion of your value before God. You don't have to be ashamed. Even if you've sinned, all the more reason to come back to the throne of grace. All the more reason to approach the throne confidently. What allows you to open the Bible and what allows you to do all these things is faith. That even though, even though, Romans said it's a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of fleshly sin? Thanks be to God. What gives you the status of son? What gives you the status of daughter? What gives you the status of heir? Is not what you can do in a week. But despite, even though, through our brokenness, God has regarded our hopeless estate and shed his blood for our soul. The point of Romans 3.23 when it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not to make you feel bad. But it's to show you, hey, stop working for God's favor and love. That's not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. You're doing the wrong thing. What God regards as righteousness, the currency of our, our, our walk with God is faith. Still believe. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope over your life. Don't lose hope over your faith. Jane, I've fallen too far during this time of quarantine. Don't lose hope over your faith. Don't don't condemn yourself over things that God does not condemn you over. How dare you? Lord over yourself in a way that God does not even lord over you. Yes, certain sins do birth sin and death, but God has paid the price of all these things. We turn back towards God because it doesn't matter anymore. And that's why we can strive to read the Bible, and that's why we can strive to pray. Because even if we don't, God still loves us, and it frees us to do these things not in a a matter of working, but in a matter of relationship. What are the ways that you have allowed your cultural understandings, your notions of Korean American Christianity, your cultural Christianity, Americanness, any of these things to affect, affect and impact the way you see faith? Because the reality is, it's not about Jew and Gentile. It's not about superiority or inferiority. It's not about visible righteousness and unrighteousness. It is literally about faith. For if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. The act of faith is what is counted as righteousness, not an act of righteousness itself, because we can't possibly do that. Another thing that we can really question is that sometimes God is doing a new thing. Church, we live in unprecedented times right now. We live in an unprecedented time. But we, and the way that we have believed in God before, the ways, the ways that we have kept ourselves in check before will not work now. Not in the state of racial, civil, political, and spiritual, and health, physical unrest. 
everything is being uprooted from the ground. Literally every aspect of our life is being uprooted from the ground. What needs to be the determining factor of what is church, and what needs to be the determining factor of how we worship, and what needs to be the determining factor of how we believe, and who we let in, and how we live out our faith, needs to be in reliance on the Holy Spirit, not in reliance of what we've known. you got to stop relying on what you've known. you got to stop relying on your knowledge, even of Scripture, to dictate the way that you see God. God is greater than the next best thing that we can think of. we got to press into the Holy Spirit. In intimacy, in grace, you have every right to, in the quiet place, present and be like, God, what are you doing? God, I don't hear you. I can't see you. And I can't see my brothers and sisters right now. But God, what are you doing here? Help me to believe in you. This is the time to cling into the Holy Spirit because you have just as much authority on heaven and on earth as Jane Doe does. You can talk to God too. Just be okay with silence when you feel like God isn't fully speaking to you because when God isn't saying anything, he's usually doing something. Lastly, how do you perceive the ways that we act? Some of you might think, well, Jane, you always say like leaders need to be like this and leaders need to be like that. Then how come leaders have to be like that? Is that not worse righteousness? In order to be a leader, do I have to be more right? No, no, no. What I value about what James, the four outlines that James gave in the end of this passage is that James tells the Gentile Christians, hey, more than anything, I'll stay away from these four things for the sake of unity. For the sake of not stumbling the J- Jewish Christians and not drawing a wet, driving a wedge between you guys. James highlights here that even if sometimes it feels like it infringes on our freedom, even if sometimes it feels more restrictive, the priority in the church, because we have really truly been set free, the priority in the church is meeting the middle. Even if we have to give up some of the breadth and the depth of what we do. Technically, I can drink, but you're not gonna see me drink. Most of y'all are not gonna see me drink. Not because I don't have the freedom to drink, but because I don't wanna stumble you. Because we meet in the middle and because I love you. I might place restrictions over myself in these certain ways, because of unity in the body of Christ. And that is what the church is missing right now. As Spider-Man has said, with great power comes great responsibility. And yet, we see a church and a nation that is irresponsible because they do not give up their powers for the sake of the greater whole. There is no in-between between political liberals and conservatives. There are no in-betweens between religious liberals and conservatives. There's no meeting in the middle between multiple generations in the church, regardless of what nation, regardless of what nationality you have. There is no in-between between the TikTok generation and the boomers. There's no in-between, no meeting in the middle. Sometimes, even if we stop doing certain things, and even if, like, it takes both sides to give up some things to meet in the middle. And here we see the church validating the Gentile Christian thing, you don't need to be circumcised. Jesus Christ alone is enough. But maybe you should stay away from these things a little bit more. The sake of unity. It's advice. What is your priority in life? Is it to do what you want? What is the goal in church? Sometimes we might need to sacrifice for one another. Sometimes it might be sacrificing some of our time to spend more time with one another. Sometimes it might be sacrificing maybe like some of us, some of us might be like, 
just going off of the drinking analogy, some of us are perfectly legal to drink, but maybe it means relinquishing some of our privileges and our freedoms around other people that would be tempted by that or stumbled by that. It's for the sake of unity, not judgment. And stop judging yourselves. Stop it. It's not worth it. You have every right to go before God, all the more so if you're struggling. Because the currency of our faith is not on what you can and cannot do. You can't help but sin. But Jesus paid the price for every moment in your life that you will turn away from God. If you believe that he has regarded your hopeless estate and shed his blood for your soul, that's all you need. Just go before God. Don't run away from God. Go before God. Approach him and let him work on your heart. Stop trying to just fix your behaviors first. Go before God. Spend time with God and watch how you change. Because behavioral differences, it doesn't matter. Even circumcision was about internal. God cares about your heart. And he values it. Even if you don't value it, even if you feel like it's sinful and dirty, God values your heart so much that he died for it. Are you going to finally believe God when he says that? Or are you going to continue to condemn yourself? Are you going to finally let go of that elementary Sunday school notion of righteousness versus unrighteousness being about sin and no sin? Are you going to judge other people for that as well? Or are you finally going to believe what God says? Let's take some time to pray. What are some things that you have done for the sake of being? What are some things that you might have done What are some things that you might have done for the sake of doing? What are some traditions, some customs that you do for the sake of doing?
to act in unity, to really live out unity, and meet in the middle. This is the fight of our generation. From wherever you're listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkmc.com.